Okay. Not my birthday. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's not even. All right, uh, go ahead and open up if you have uh, your Bibles. Uh, Mark 15. Uh, we are we are concluding today. This is the very last lesson in our study of Mark's Gospel. If for some reason uh, you don't have a Bible this morning, we got extra copies of those on this little back table here. If for some reason you don't have a note sheet, we got some extras on the table as well. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to follow along with us this morning as we uh, get into Mark 15. So our long journey through Mark's gospel comes to an end. What we began back in November of 2021 now meets its conclusion about a year and a half later. Uh, if you were here on Friday night, you know there was a trivia question. How many, how many lessons is it going to have taken us to complete this. Do you remember? What was that number? Yeah. Oh, it's close. Very close. Not quite 50, though. 45. 45 is correct. So this is number 45 for us. Nice round number. Uh, but it is a bittersweet ending. You know, I've loved this study and what it's meant uh, for me personally and for our ministry. Uh, but I'm also excited to press forward you with you into other sections of the Bible. Next week, we're going to have a guest speaker with uh, uh, one of our retired pastors, uh, Pastor Summers. He's going to be here next week, so you'll benefit from that. He's going to be kind of serving as a buffer week. And then in two weeks, uh, we are going to begin a brand new study in the book of Proverbs. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Been thinking through that for a while. So we're going to be uh, spending most of our uh, summer months, uh, maybe into the early fall in the book of Proverbs, just to give you a taste of what's ahead. Uh, but before we can do that, we must drop the curtain on this story. And as we read it, it's going to appear that someone drops the curtain a little too early on the story. And we're going to explain more of that as we go along. So I'm not going to reveal too much, so let's read it together as we begin our time of study. So let's uh, stand. We're going to read from Mark 15. Uh, we left off last time in verse 42. And I'm going to read down through chapter 16, verse 8. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked whether that he had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, this is what we're going to look at this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help and wisdom as we study it together. So, Father, we do just ask now that you would bless uh, the coming minutes that uh, as we bring uh, a final close to this gospel, pray that you would help our hearts to, to see ourselves in the story, to really wrestle with the very same questions that Mark intends for us to wrestle with. Um, 
as this gospel comes to a uh, decisive and in some ways unexpected ending. So uh, would you please bless our time of meditation on your word this morning, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, endings are often not what they seem, whether it be a last-second plot twist or a sudden conclusion, we've all experienced endings that are far from what we would expect. We see that no place more clearly than movies, right, where the directors Uh, The writers throw an interesting twist into the mix that maybe we were not fully expecting. Who can forget the classic twist at the end of the fifth and most epic Star Wars movie when Darth Vader reveals to Luke that his father did not die. He is his father. Sudden and life-changing thing thrown to you at the very end of that movie Or perhaps we could relate to the Disney classic from a few years ago, Zootopia, where we find out all along that the real villain in the story was none other than the cute and cuddly Dawn Bellwether. That movie's junk anyway. What? That is so, so not true. That is one of the most underrated Disney movies of all time. But who would have expected that the superheroes would actually lose at the end of the third Avengers movie. So, spoiler alert, if you're waiting to watch that movie, they lose. They lose. It's okay, they redeem it in the fourth one, but the curtain drops. Yeah, I know, it's okay. The curtain drops and all of a sudden you're like, wait, they, they legitimately just lost? Like, that's how this movie ends? I watched it with Holly and she hated it. Because of that reason. She does not like a lack of closure. At least someone died. There was definitely plenty of deaths. But in every single one of these... Sorry, we're going to have to get off that screen there. (laughs) But in every single one of these, the unexpected is essential for the bigger storyline. So then we could ask ourselves the question, what then is the... uh, What then of the ending to Mark's gospel... What are we supposed to learn in these final 14 verses? There are twists, there are turns, and there are stops. And we could even say there are hard stops. So what would Mark want us to learn from the resurrection in our final lesson of this great gospel? Well, big idea that I want you to to get from this morning is is that within the, the resurrection story of Jesus, especially as Mark presents it to us, we should expect the unexpected with God. It reminds us and it teaches us a a truth that really we see in other places of Scripture, but maybe no place more clearly than what we see in this, that we should always learn to expect the unexpected with God. We're coming off the celebration of uh, the resurrection last Sunday, so this is very timely for us. This is still fresh on our minds. I don't want us to rush past the idea of the resurrection, but it, it provides a real solid basis for us as we wrap up this gospel this morning. In some sense, the main thrust of Mark's gospel is actually over at this point. Even though Jesus has not uh, risen from the grave quite yet at this point. Again, another spoiler in case you didn't know, he rises, right? But think about it. What, what began in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first sentence, the very first verse of the entire gospel Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? Do you remember? The nice thing is you could cheat. You could just go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? What? Son of God, right? In many ways, Mark has been trying to prove this point throughout his gospel. How do I know that? Well, he kind of bookends the entire Gospel with that idea of Jesus being the Son of God. Well, where do we see that again? Towards the very end. Because remember a few weeks ago, in chapter 15, verse 39, we saw a Roman who was, again, kind of Roman people were uh, Mark's audience here. And what does he confess about Jesus? He says, surely this man was what? It's not a trick question, I promise. It's... 
Surely this man was what? The Son of God, right? And so we see at the very outset of the gospel, Mark saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By the very end, you see the most pagan of men's coming to the conclusion, this Jesus is indeed the Son of God. As such, he's kind of prepared us a nice, juicy Son of God sandwich. In other words, you got the, the bookends of it, and so everything in between this sandwich here is pointing us back to that very point. Today's text is not only going to further and solidify that point, but it will then ask you to consider what you now do with that information. It's not just enough that you know that that's what this is teaching us. The real question at the end of the day is, what's that going to change for you, if anything? What difference does it make? And so as we work through our final section this morning, I want us to work through all the unexpected elements that Mark provides for us. And that begins in verses 42 to 47, kind of a, a throw-in section there between Jesus' death and his uh, resurrection with his burial, where we see an unexpected ally emerge. You know, we talked about a moment ago some of these unexpected characters or these unexpected plot twists in movies. Uh, this is somewhat unexpected as well because suddenly a new character emerges that was not known up to this point in the story. We've never met him. We've never heard of him. He just appears, and he appears in a very dramatic and a very important way for this story. So look at verse 42. Let's set the context a little bit here. Verse 42 says, And when evening had come, in other words, this was probably about late afternoon on Friday after Jesus had been crucified. He had just yielded up his spirit. He had just died. It was about maybe 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It was here listed as the day of preparation. The day of preparation meaning that we are now in the kind of time where the Jewish people would prepare themselves for what he describes later in that verse as the Sabbath. Remember, every single week the Sabbath was that regular time of rest and recovery and celebration for the Jewish people. Um, and there were meals that were observed. It was a very uh, communal thing that they did together. And so this is the preparation time for the Sabbath. And because of that, work could not be done. And so burial prep had to be done swiftly here. So who steps in to help? And like I said, isn't it like Mark to introduce a new character in the closing moments, right? It's like introducing an important character in the last like 10 minutes of a movie. This guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He steps in and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And you're just like, this is kind of random. Like, who, who is this guy who suddenly has this weird obsession that he wants to bury Jesus's body? But before tackling the significance of this request, let's, let's just ask that question. Who is this guy? It says here that he is a prominent member, a respected member of the council. Anybody know what council that would be referring to? would have been referred to this this uh, governing body known as the Sanhedrin. Do you remember the Sanhedrin was the very same body of people who were in charge of uh, bringing the charges against Jesus saying that he would be crucified. That they wanted him to have a death sentence. That was this guy. He was part of that larger governing body. Now, we don't know where he was for that. We don't know what his part was. It seems that he was somebody who was maybe voting against that, trying to work against it based on what we see here. Uh, but we know that he is within that body of people. But notice it says that he's a, respect, a, a respected or a prominent member, meaning that he was honorable. He was reputable. He had power and influence. It wasn't enough to stop the things happening to Jesus, which honestly, that was God's doing. Right, Because Jesus himself said it was God's will for him to die. He was laying down his life on his own accord. So it was not about stopping this. It was actually about fulfilling this. So J Joseph had no part to be able to, to stop it. But he does have another important part to play in the story. But what we also know about Joseph is that he was, according to verse uh, 43 there, he was somebody who was looking for the kingdom of God. 
And that's significant. If you go back to the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus showed up and he was proclaiming a message about what? The kingdom of God. There was something about Jesus that drew Joseph to himself. In fact, if you were to look at some of the other gospel accounts, what it says about Joseph says that he was actually a secret follower of Jesus. He was a secret follower of Jesus, that he actually had some type of relationship with him. And we learned that he was also, according to Matthew, he was rich. Uh, he was wealthy. He was powerful. He had a lot of influence. But he, in this, even though he has all those things, what he does here takes a lot of courage. Who would think somebody who is as highly influential as him, this wouldn't be such a big deal. And yet he had to take courage by going to Pilate asking to bury Jesus' body. And the reason I say that that was a risk for him is think about him in many ways coming out of the shadows and making a very public declaration that he's sympathetic towards Jesus amongst this governing group of people who just condemned him. Think about the risk for him. Think about, let's just put this in your terms for a moment. Think about his popularity. Think about how the people who thought they were friends with him now are going to view him. As such, he comes out of the shadows. And he makes this incredible request for the body of Jesus. And it seems so odd to us. Um... Because honestly, this also, you would think, well, wouldn't family or friend, like people that we know, wouldn't they be the ones coming to ask? But a lot of times those requests were not granted, even to family. In fact, in that culture, it was not common to bury criminals who were crucified. Uh, the Romans wouldn't allow it a lot of times to send a message to people. Um, it was very common, actually, in this culture for somebody who was crucified uh, there was kind of, I mean, two, three main options, right? The one was that they would just leave the corpse up on the cross so they would just decompose. And that's gross. And that's the point, right? Is that the Romans would point to that person and be able to say, hey, whatever you just did against us, don't be like that guy. Don't be stupid, okay? This is, this is what you're going to get. Um, if they didn't just decompose naturally. You would imagine wild beasts of the field or the air coming and, and picking away. I mean, it's, it's as gross as it sounds. Uh, but if they didn't uh, go that route, the most likely route was that they would just uh, toss the bodies into basically a common grave. There was a cliff off the side of uh, the city of Jerusalem that was known as Gehenna. It's actually from the same word uh, that we get the word hell. Um, it's the place where a lot of times trash and other things were tossed in order to be burned and to be uh, to, to, to de decompose. And so uh, the, the thought of burying someone from crucifixion was actually quite rare. And so that's something that we have to actually look at in the story and say, God's doing something behind the scenes here. Uh, it's significant because Jesus' body actually needed to be buried in order to fulfill scripture, right? Because what did Jesus himself say was going to happen to him after three days? He would rise from the grave. Joseph, think about this, Joseph is being used, unknown to himself, by God to carry out God's plan. Pilate is surprised by this request uh, by news of Jesus' death because a lot of times in this culture if somebody was crucified, it took them days to die. And that sounds horrible. It could take up to two to three days for somebody to die. The fact that Jesus had already died seemed somewhat miraculous. It, it, he didn't think that it could be possible. He even had to summon the centurion, the very same one who confessed Jesus as the Son of God and said, hey, is this true? And the Roman centurion is like, yeah, it's, it's true. Again, these guys perfected crucifixion. They know what happens. And like I said, it's not unusual for them to live for days. A, a lot of times, if it was taking too long and they were needing to speed things up, we actually see this in the other Gospels with the other men. What do they end up doing? They end up knocking their legs, breaking their legs 
Because at the end of the day, what killed most people from crucifixion was not blood loss or pain or anything like that. It was actually suffocation. Because when you're hanging the way that you are on it, you're actually trying to push up so that you can get breaths of air. If you can't push up on your legs because they're broken, it's only going to speed up that process before you die. But the centurion confirms the reports. And isn't that just like God, right? To actually allow Jesus to, in that span of time, bear the sin and the weight of humanity on his shoulders to die in such a time frame that still allows time for him to still be buried before the weekend begins. And so what happens? He grants to this Joseph the body of Jesus. In fact, actually, he uses the word corpse because he's dead at this point. Again, kind of weird that he would actually grant this request to some degree, too. Maybe it continues to show that Pilate was a little bit sympathetic towards Jesus as well. I mean, Pilate is a person who loves to please people, so he's willing to keep as many people happy as possible. And so we see Joseph, and most likely because of his wealth and his prominence, his servants take Jesus down, which, think about this, to come into contact with a dead body would do what to you? Mm -hmm. We talk about this a lot in here, right? It would make him ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, which was significant, and considering this was the time of the Passover, considering Sabbath was about to happen. I mean, Joseph is taking, again, another level of risk by this. Wraps them in this brand new linen cloth. They prep him. We see from the other Gospels, Nicodemus, another prominent religious leader, also uh, helping with the spices, all the things. They wrap him and they bury him. These spices that uh, they would have included would have been just mostly to cover up the scent of decay, not to prevent decay. Uh, because what would happen in this culture with these tombs, these, these uh, stone tombs that were really not very large rooms, they would basically have a little shelf area here where you would, where you would place the body. And these, the whole point was actually that the body would decompose. It was just meant to, to cover up the stench. But then you hear a lot of times people talking about uh, gathering up the bones uh, or being uh, committed to their fathers. Well, in due time, what they would do would actually be to collect those bones. They would have them in a kind of a safe space so then actually that tomb could be used for others later on. And this is, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53 where it talks about uh, God's suffering servant, uh, that the, the sins of the world would, be, would bear on his shoulders, right? That... Um, but one of the most unique places in Isaiah 53 that we don't talk about is Isaiah 53, verse 9. If you want to write it down and look at it later, where it says that he, the suffering servant there, would be like a rich man in his death. And you're like, how in the world is that possible? I think that it's connected to this. The fact that a very rich man, a very prominent member, gave him a very nice tomb and really treated him with the honor and the respect that was due unto his name. And so we see here this unexpected ally being used by God to fulfill his purposes, which then leads us into a second part of the story, which is an unexpected discovery. An unexpected discovery. The end of the previous section indicates that there were some faithful few who watched all this unfold. And by faithful few, I mean faithful women. They were there at the cross. They were there at the burial. They were the first to go to the tomb. I mean, Mark is not ashamed here to say that, hey, the ladies, even though they were doing so from a distance, they were still there. They were there. God was using them in powerful ways as a testimony to others still of their faith, even though it was imperfect, even though uh, it didn't expect to find what it found here on Sunday morning. <clears throat> but these women, they, they knew what had happened. They knew where Jesus was. I think it's important that it says that they were there when he was being buried because these women knew the exact spot where Jesus was. And they, too, want to pay their respects to Jesus. But think about it. By Friday at this point, it's already the Sabbath. It's too late for them to do anything. They, too, want to offer acts of worship. They want to be able to provide these spices, these things that go into burial. I mean, this is someone they loved and cared for, had, had followed themselves. 
But they can't do so by Friday evening. It's already the Sabbath. They have to wait until Saturday evening. But by that point, the sun's already going down. They, they're able to get their spices. But the earliest they can actually get to the tomb would be Sunday morning. And again, by God's divine providence, that's exactly when Jesus is going to be raised. It's only on their way to the tomb Sunday morning that they begin to wonder to themselves what they're going to do about that large stone that gets rolled in front of the tomb. It's one of those things that, you know, when you talk about planning and hindsight, you're like, why is this just the first time this is coming up in conversation? Why are we just now thinking about this? We're just a bunch of ladies. I don't think that we're going to be able to do this, but we're still going, right? Don't know how it's going to happen. You're like, well... Shouldn't the men help out? Well, guess what? What are all the dudes doing right now? They're hiding. They're hiding, they're grieving, but they're, they're nowhere to be found. <laughs> they're, they're, they're absent. And yet you still see these faithful women not knowing how they're going to make it happen, but they're determined they're going to make it happen. And the reason they ask this question it's not because they reasonably feel like one of them is going to be able to do so. I think Mark does this because he sets up the suspense of the story. It's building because, guess what? The problem that they see on the horizon is something that God has already resolved. Mark doesn't mention the earthquake that other gospel writers does, but the implication when they get there is that this stone has already been rolled away by God. This large stone that nobody thought possible to be able to move, it has already been moved. And it wasn't to let Jesus out, it was to be able to let them in so that they could see the proof of what was there. We see when they get there, they go into this tomb that they think has been robbed or something like that, and they just see a guy. <laughs> it's actually funny the way that Mark writes it here. It says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Uh, there, he's, he's clothed in white. We know from the other Gospels, sometimes they indicate there's two of them. There's one. It, it just all depends on the person and where their focus or their attention was. But they just see this guy, he's just sitting there. He's kind of like, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you here? Don't be alarmed. <laughs> I love that too because what's the very first thing it says about them? They were very alarmed. And what does he say? Hey, don't be alarmed. There's no need. There's no need. And he's got big news for them. He says... He's risen. He's risen just as he said he would. In fact, actually, the, the language there is more probably indicative of like he has been raised. He has been raised to life. And he points them to all the factors, right? This Jesus who was crucified, okay? You didn't imagine something. He was crucified. He's not here. See where they laid him? You know where they laid him. You saw them lay him right here. He's not here. He's not here. This is the reality. This is not some practical joke. It's not some conspiracy attempt. And I bring that to your attention because there are a lot of people over the years who have tried to conjure up all types of reasonable and logical explanations or conspiracy theories about what actually happened that day. Just to give you a few, and they're all, pardon my language, they're all dumb. They are. First one, that the disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body and made up the whole resurrection story. First of all, they got to take out a whole bunch of Roman guards to be able to do that. I don't really see that happening. But secondly, what are the disciples doing right now? They're hiding. They're scared. The guy that they just entrusted their lives to for three and a half years just got taken away, just got killed. Their mission is over from their standpoint. Every time Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the grave, it went over their heads. They never trusted it once. So that's kind of a lame explanation. Another one is that the women went to the wrong tomb. You know, women, directions, it, it could have been it. Sorry, I'm just, that's the excuse, right? 
There's just there's a lot of tombs, so they probably they just went to the wrong one. Which I love is because verse 47, they saw where they laid him. It's not like this is someplace they hadn't been before. They knew where he was. Stupid. And then my favorite. My favorite that just blows my mind. Jesus didn't actually die, but he, he swooned. I like that word. That's the swoon theory, right? He just, uh, he just appeared like he died, right? Because after all, it wasn't very long. You know, forget the testimony of the centurion who does this all the time, who knows when somebody dies. Jesus just, you know, he, he passed out. They buried him too early. And so he resuscitated and he, he, he lived. As if then a guy who had just been beaten, crucified, has the strength in the world to sit up and then move this giant stone and just walk out of there, right? Like, just the most ridiculous things. I say these to you because people will try to use those at some point in life. Don't believe it. It's dumb. It's dumb. What does the angel tell them to do in light of this news and this response? What does that tell them to do? He says, go and tell the disciples. But notice he doesn't just say, go and tell the disciples. He says, go and tell the disciples and what? And who? Peter. Why Peter? Why does he call out Peter in this, right? I mean, Peter is one of the disciples after all. So why does he have to specify and Peter? Why do you think? Yeah. Peter was the very one of all the disciples who said, I will never disown you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. What does he do? He does every single one of those. He's the representative of the whole group in actually denying Jesus three times. And so what I love about this verse is it reminds us of God's grace. There is so much grace in this single phrase, and Peter. Peter messed up poorly. But that did not mean that God had forsaken Peter. Peter was still just as much, if not more, a part of God's plan now because of what he had done. One of the commentators that I, I read through for my study, uh, Garland says this, David Garland, he says, God overruled human failure and disobedience. We thus learn that with God, our failures are not fatal. Student, you're going to mess up. You're going to do things in life that you wish that you wouldn't have done. But that does not mean that that automatically separates you from the grace of God. They have such great news. They have such great motivation. They have everything they need to go and to tell. And verse 8 what do they do with it? It says they go out and they told no one. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. final unexpected detail of this story is its unexpected ending. And it's unexpected in two different ways. The first of which is that it says that they said nothing to anyone. Hmm. That's interesting. Because if you read the other gospel accounts, what do the women do? Do they remain silent? No, they tell people. They do. They go and they tell the, the disciples. And, and Peter and John, they come to the tomb. And they, this is not the way the other Gospels end. And so this is unexpected. You ask yourself, so did Mark get his information wrong? What's going on? And guess what? A lot of people think that as well. They think, okay, Mark just maybe, uh, he, he, he ran out of time, maybe he died, maybe all these different things, and so he really actually intended to go on. So you'll notice that in most of your Bibles, you probably have a verses 9 through 20. How many of you, your Bibles include verses 9 through 20? 
How many of your Bibles right before that include something that say uh, the earliest, uh, some earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20? Okay, almost all yours, I would guess. Some little note or asterisks about that. And it's unique because you're like, so, wait, what? Like, what is going on here? Because, well, you just read for us earlier, only to verse 8. Pastor Scott, you didn't read verses 9 through 20. Why, why not? I mean, after all, verses 9 through 20 kind of gives us more the, the detail of what actually happens there. But I want to explain just a little something to you, and not in a way that should be hurtful or harmful here, but verses 9 to 20, uh, as it says there, are not in some of the earliest manuscripts. Now, I want you to hear me very loud and clear this morning. A lot of what you see there in verses 9 through 20 we know is accurate from the other gospel accounts. So I don't want us to distrust our Bibles because what you see there is actually almost 95% exactly what's still in the rest of our Bibles in other places. So it doesn't create some alternative, alternative information that we would not know otherwise. But what we have to understand is the earliest manuscripts are usually for the Bible what we consider to be the, uh, the oldest and most reliable meaning that they were probably more likely the intended idea here. A lot of what you see in verses 9 through 20 there, uh, you wouldn't know this, but actually in the original Greek language, uh, the writing style is very different than Mark's, which gives us some indication that somebody else probably wrote it, not Mark. Uh, verse 8, even though it's abrupt, it is actually kind of a clear breaking point. And I think, and we're going to talk about this a moment here, to actually add on verses 9 through 20, even though we know the rest of the, the Gospels include information very similar to it, is actually taking away from Mark's point. Uh, you know, some people, they, they feel like they need to fix this, just like later uh, artists tried to fix Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. You're not familiar with that. He painted this grand Sistine Chapel, um, but some people were uncomfortable with the idea that he painted people who didn't have clothes on, and so later people were like, oh, no, we gotta go, we gotta try to cover this up or whatever. No, that's, that's actually the way it was intended, and so it's unexpected in the sense that actually verse 8 is where Mark intended to end this gospel. A lot of us forget that Mark's gospel actually began very abruptly. Do you remember that? We talked about that at the very start, but think about Matthew's gospel. You have this genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to Abraham and includes a birth story about Jesus. You have the gospel of Luke that includes a genealogy all the way back to Adam and includes a birth story about Jesus. You have the gospel of John that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to the beginning of time in eternity past in heaven with God the Father. And then you get Mark, and Mark is just like uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and boom, it like fast forwards to year 30 of his life. And you're like, what just happened? It began pretty abruptly, and it ends pretty abruptly as well. But I think the abruptness of it and what happens at the end of the resurrection narrative is exactly Mark's point. We have now come face to face with Jesus being the Son of God who has risen from the dead. He has given a command and a message to go and to tell others about him. And the question that now faces us is, what do you do with that information? It kind of reminds us, do you remember, how many of you have read the book of Noah? Or sorry, not Noah. Wow. <laughs> Tricked ya. <laughs> None of you have. Um, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Have you ever noticed the ending of Jonah is really abrupt? God kind of asked Jonah this, uh, this question of like, why are you complaining? Why are you so worried about how I give my grace to other people? Am I not, uh, are, are the people of Nineveh not more important than all these cattle and all these other things that you're worried about? And then guess what? Boom, curtain drops. And you're like, well, well how did Jonah respond? How did he, what did he do with that information? That's the whole point. It's, it's, it comes to that sudden conclusion so that you yourself, as the reader, have to ask yourselves, what am I doing with this information? How then should I live? 
One other commentator says that uh, Mark's method throughout the gospel has been to leave his readers to make the crucial next step of faith. And so this abrupt and we could say unexpected ending is actually written this way on purpose so that you too now wrestle with the information of what do I do with this resurrected son of God that I have seen for 16 chapters? What am I going to do with that? And why is that important? And so as we wrap up the entire Gospel of Mark, a couple quick key takeaways that I want you to think about in our points to ponder here. First, God is in the business of working in unexpected ways. So much of this final section, especially for the original audience, was a plot with numerous twists. A secret follower who was actually on the inside, perceived among the enemy lines. Jesus isn't in the tomb. He's gone. Go and tell this great news, and then the curtain drops on the show. What's going on here? It reminds us of how God works. Yes, he does not change. He remains consistent to himself, but he does not act like men. That's the whole idea here, is that God is not like us. If, if we were the ones in charge, we would do things in a very human-driven perspective. We would do things much different because we are not God. But that's the template of God throughout the Bible, isn't it? After all, who did Jesus call to be his closest followers? Fishermen, tax collectors, mercenaries. That's what the zealots are, by the way. Pretty cool. Those are the ones he chose. And guess what? The Bible says that our salvation that we receive from God is not because we are worthy, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious. That's unexpected for every single one of us. That's so different than every other human religion in the world, student. That is what separates Christianity from every other worldview and religion that's out there. You don't earn it. You don't have to be good enough for it. God and His grace grants it. Reminding us that what is perceived as the foolishness of God is actually meant to shame the wise. Secondly, being a follower of Jesus involves a certain level of risk and cost. After all, think about all the risk and cost for Joseph. He aligns himself with Jesus when it was viewed as highly unpopular. Think about all the cost to him, the financial cost of giving Jesus his family grave, buying all the materials and things to bury him. Think about the ceremonial cost of becoming unclean and having to uh, go through all the work of becoming a cleansed Jew. Think about the social cost, right, of all the people he worked with or alongside and what it would have cost his reputation. While Joseph was initially a secret follower, he stepped out of the shadows at a very risky point. After all, Jesus is dead. He maybe didn't expect Jesus to rise from the grave either. Feels like a really risky time to suddenly say, I identify with Jesus. If any time, this would seem like the time where you say, huh, okay, glad I didn't come out of the shadows too quickly there, right? But now we see in him strength, courage, and boldness to identify himself with Jesus. And so I ask you, how should that encourage you today? You who are struggling to be bold in identifying yourself with Jesus in your school, in your family, on your teams, your clubs, out of fear of what it might cost your popularity, your image, perhaps your friend group. <laughs> Even more amazing, again, is the fact that he does this after Jesus died. So he's sympathetic to Jesus at a time when we'd expect him to withdraw even further. He had nothing, listen, put it this way, he had nothing to gain but everything to lose. And yet this teaches us another important point, that God uses the faithful few in powerful ways. We certainly see that with Joseph. God uses this secret follower in his coming out to fulfill, unknown to himself, the saving plans of God. Again, Jesus had to be buried, as he said, three days, three nights. He had to, he had to actually fulfill this in order for it to happen, so somebody had to help accomplish this. Not only that, but he had to be, this had to be done before the Sabbath started at sundown. 
And so God uses the faithfulness of Joseph to bring about the resurrection, but not just Joseph. We see also, as I mentioned, the women in the story. They're there at the cross. They're there at the burial. They're there at the resurrection. While the men are hiding, the women are watching. <laughs> Is their part perfect in the story? No, but it shows their faithfulness to Jesus. And as such, they become the first witnesses to the resurrection. Student, here's another thing for you. As you think about why we can believe the resurrection, I'll put it this way. A first century audience would not try to build their argument on the witnesses of women because guess what in that culture the witnesses or the uh, verification of information by women was disregarded the Jews knew that I'm not saying I like that I'm just telling you what the fact is and so that gives us even more confidence that we should trust this is the fact that they built their argument specifically on the testimony and the verification by these women and so we ask ourselves what might God do with you with just little steps of faithfulness that go a long way in carrying out God's work. Fourth, we do not worship a dead Savior. That might sound obvious, but I don't want to lose sight in the ending of this gospel to the very reality of the fact that Jesus is alive. I know we, we beat that horse last week because it was Resurrection Sunday, but we have to remind ourselves that this is the reason we gather every single Sunday. This is the truth that makes our lives count right now. We cannot move past that reality any Sunday, but I would say any day of our lives. The angel reminds us, he is not here. He has been raised just as he said he would. And again, the resurrection is one of the strongest proofs of our faith. I mean, after all, why make up a lie that they knew would cost them their lives? Their hope was destroyed when Jesus died. Soon. Jesus existed. That is, that is a historical fact that Jesus was a real person. The question for you today is, as we're going to see soon, is what do you do with that? What do you believe about that? But if Jesus is indeed alive, and he is, then we worship a living Savior who gives hope for both our eternal life, but also our life right now. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that because of this, our life is not empty. It is not a waste. That in light of our future resurrection and the hope that awaits us, we can remain steadfast in this life, knowing that everything that we do for Jesus is so worth it. In other words, the resurrection is motivation for your daily obedience to Jesus. Kind of important, isn't it? Kind of significant. I'm going to go quick on this one, but we can still trust our Bibles. The ending of Mark makes a lot of people uncomfortable, whether it be the abrupt ending or the notation about material that may or may not be in the Bible. But this should not minimize your trust in the Bible, student. In some ways, I would actually say it should increase your trust in the Bible. Thank God that we have thousands of copies of new testament manuscripts so when it says that we have like all these manuscripts actually praise god for that praise god for that the reason i say that is because that's actually rare people put a lot of stock in certain characters from human history based on certain particular literary works right so think about like julius caesar I think all of us would agree Julius Caesar existed. The information that we know about Julius Caesar comes from the Gallic Wars documents. Guess how many copies of those exist in the world today? Like maybe a dozen. We have 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. The poetics of Aristotle, how we know anything about Aristotle from the poetics that he wrote. Guess what? There's less than 10 manuscripts of those in the entire world. 6,000 New Testament, 20,000 if you include the Old Testament. The writings of the philosopher Socrates, zero manuscripts. There's nothing. 6,000 for the New Testament. 
Students, see the miraculous hand of God in preserving the book that sits before you on your lap this morning. You have no reason to doubt its reliability, even in the unique verses that are included here at the end. You can still, without a doubt, trust your Bibles. And then finally, as we've said already and we've highlighted multiple times, Mark's ending actually is an invitation. The reason he ends it so abruptly here is an invitation for you to respond. And so this sudden ending provides the foundation for two essential questions. Number one, who is Jesus to you? And then secondly, what will you do with that news? As Garland again writes, he says, Many will hear the news during Easter Sunday worship that Jesus has been raised and will sing hymns praising God. And all too many will then go home quietly to an Easter dinner and go back to the routines of their lives largely unaffected by this news. They are neither filled with awe nor compelled to tell anyone about what they know. It's kind of interesting reading that quote a week after Easter because I ask you, like, what difference has the resurrection made since you celebrated it last Sunday? This good news that Jesus is the Son of God who lives and is reigning now today. What difference is it making to your life? And how are you excited to tell others about it? This is the Jesus that Mark has presented us the last year and a half on Sunday mornings as we've studied it together. And my encouragement to you is do not be silent. Go take that news to others. But first, let it transform your own life. See the compassion, see the mercy, and even as we saw this morning, see the grace of Jesus in saving and redeeming you and welcoming you into his family. So let's pray. God, thank you for this morning again. Thank you for the time these students have given. And thank you for the study that we've enjoyed these last uh, several months, really the better part of the last year and a half. Um, I pray that it has been meaningful, impactful for them. And Lord, now we just pray that you would use it for your glory in their lives, that Lord, as they've seen the true Jesus presented to them, that they would now uh, bask Lord, in the truth of your grace, but now also then go and proclaim it to others for the glory of your great name, in which we pray now. Amen.